Thanks for listening to the Sugar Hill Church Podcast. To hear more sermons and to find out more about our church, please visit sugarhillchurch.com. Over the last several weeks, we have been in the series. Pastor Chuck's been teaching the series called Likewise. Have y'all enjoyed the series? Have y'all been able to dig into it? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And as part of the series, it's really built around, in some ways, a simple concept, but it's one that's powerful when we begin to live it out. It's this idea that all of our lives are to reflect the life of Christ. In fact, several weeks ago, Pastor Chuck taught a sermon where at the end of the, the section of Scripture we looked at, Jesus turns to this religious leader and Jesus says this one phrase. He says, go and do what? Likewise. Go and do likewise. And that's the difference maker. That's what this whole series has been about, is that in our lives, the thing that marks a believer isn't really the clothes that we wear. It's not the style of songs that we sing. It's not uh, the building that we gather in. But the difference maker, the thing that marks the life of a believer is that our lives begin to look more like Jesus's. That our thoughts begin to change, our heart begins to change, our emotions, our reactions, every part of our life begins to reflect the life of Christ. And so that's what this whole series has been about. If you've missed a week, I want to encourage you to log on to the church website, sugarhillchurch.com, and click on resources and listen to that. Listen to the series because it's been super practical. Well, today as we continue the series, I have the privilege of getting to tag team and co-teach with Pastor Chuck, which is great fun. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah. I don't have my red on today, so sorry. That's all right. That's right. You'll, you someday you'll grow up and want to do that. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Preach it. Uh, as we get to tag team today and, and we think about this idea of likewise, one of the areas we want to talk about or the area we want to talk about today is what does it look like to worship like Jesus? Mm-hmm. What does it really look like to worship like Jesus? Because honestly, if you were to take a poll and to take a survey and ask, well, what does it look like to worship? What is worship? We'd get a lot of different answers, wouldn't we? A lot of times we associate worship with a building or a style or how many songs you do. Do you stand up, sit down, raise your hands? All, we define it by all these external things. But in the scriptures, in the, in the gospel of Matthew, Jesus is asked a question and his answer, I really believe, defines what true worship is. And Jesus' answer to worship, he doesn't answer by how many songs you, you should sing, what style the songs are, how do you dress when you sing the songs. He, he doesn't answer any of that stuff. Instead, here's what Jesus does when he's asked this question, Jesus, what is the biggest deal? And this verse is in your handout if you want to follow along and if you want to jot down some notes today. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37, here it is. You shall love the Lord your God with what? all. Not just songs, not just clothing, not just taking. He doesn't list any of those things. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. And then here's what Jesus says. This is the greatest and the first commandment. Isn't that powerful? Here's Jesus put on the spot. What's the deal, Jesus? What's the big idea? And Jesus says, it comes down to love. Now, Jesus isn't talking about some romantic love. He's not not talking about a flirtatious love. He's not talking about some sexual love. He's talking about a willful decision that affects the choices that we make. And this is powerful. This is powerful. Why? Sometimes people ask, well, why does God want us to worship him? Why does God want us to sing songs to him? What's the big deal? And here's the big deal. What God knows is that whatever captures our heart's affection And whatever captures our mind's attention will ultimately determine our life's direction. 
Now, I know that's a big phrase to unpack, but whatever's in our head, whatever's in our heart begins to affect the direction of our life. And so when we worship somebody or something besides God, our life is going off track. Worship simply means to give something worth, to lift something up and say, this thing is worth something. This thing is valuable. And so when we lift up a sports team or we lift up a band or we lift up a bank account or we lift up something or someone else besides God, our life goes off track. So here's Jesus in the middle of this teaching moment. When, he, when this guy asks him, what's the biggest deal? And he says, you shall love the Lord your God. It's all about love. All throughout scripture, scripture is built off this concept of love. And so today, as we think about what does it mean to be likewise? What does it mean to follow the example of Jesus? It means that it begins and ends with our love for God. Because he says, love God with your, what? With all your heart. I mean, Worship strengthens us. It gives us a sense of God's presence, and ultimately, it gives us an awareness of his protection and his provision. Have you ever been at a a stage of life where you desperately needed to know that you had a real, meaningful, purposeful, personal relationship with the one who created you? to the degree that you knew that he would provide for you, hear you, and answer you. To know that there was a time that not only was he there, but he has always been there seeking and pursuing this love relationship with us. That is what's worthy of worship. And what God says is, I want all your heart. I I want everything. Like everything Jesus teaches, worship is all a matter of the heart. I mean, worship is a heart issue. And when we look at that, we begin that worship is a love issue that begins with the heart. I mean, our challenge isn't so much that we have scheduling problems or just relational problems. Our problem is we have love problems and getting our love relationship right with the one who first loved us. Because when our worship is right, it is because our hearts are filled with love for our creator, for our God, for our heavenly father. Jesus made no mistake when he placed these directional statements in place. Now, if you're a biblical literalist like I am, and you believe from Genesis to maps, God put everything in a purpose and a rhyme and a reason. And there's, it's there in its right directional purpose. And he said, and he began with the heart. We we recognize Jesus wants our heart. He wants us to start everything, end everything, live through everything by giving us our, giving him our entire heart. I truly believe that to worship is to set our heart in motion toward reverence and in honor of God and to acknowledge him as more than worthy of our heart's affection and our praise. We tend to treat worship, though, like a lot of things in our life, just another activity that kind of beckons us to attend or measure or even participate in. But if we're, we're to be imitators of Jesus, our worship will inevitably and precisely reflect our heart. So if you came today and you have a heart filled with bitterness, it's reflected in your worship. If you came today with a heart filled with joy, it was reflected in your worship. If you came with a heart full of anger, it was reflected in your worship. If you came here with a heart full of anxiety and rush, it's reflected in your worship. And God says, but I want all of your heart. Here's the thought that probably will help us today. We all worship something. 
As Bobby mentioned, I mean, inevitably we, we have certain things and, and whatever captures and draws our attention will inevitably have our affection and that is what we worship. Because you see, somehow or another we have we, we've been able to take worship and contain it in a box and say it's from 11 to whenever Chuck lets us out. That, that's what worship is. And God says, no, I, I want worship in your car. I want worship in your cubicle. I want worship in your office. I want worship at your locker. I want worship in your school. I want worship in your classroom. I want worship at your dinner table. I want worship when you watch TV. I want, we want you to find me and worship me with all of your, say it, heart. heart. Why start there? Because when the heart stops, what happens to life? It stops as well. And when the heart is full, what do we see? We see the overflow of our heart. You ever been around somebody that just kind of, they could lose it in a heartbeat and they're just mad and they just fly off the handle. You know, you know what happens? It's an overflow of their heart. You say, no, they've got an anger problem. No, they got a love problem. And that our hearts aren't filled with love. It's not filled with God. It's, it's, it's like a young mommy who had this little bedtime ritual. She had a little boy and she'd finally gotten that little boy out of the crib and out of their room and into his own room. And this was a big deal. And she'd lay down with that little boy every night and she'd cuddle up with, with him and they'd share Bible stories. And right before they said their prayers, they had this little deal where she would look at him and she'd say, I love you more than all the little boys in the world. I wouldn't trade you for all the little boys in the world. And that little boy would come back and he'd creatively come to something to compare his mom to and his love for his mom. And he'd say, mom, I would trade you for all baseball cards in the world. She'd smile and hug him. And you know, the next night they'd go through it. I wouldn't trade you for all the little boys in the world. And he'd say, oh, mom, I wouldn't even trade you for Aunt Sarah's pool. I love you. And then finally one night she said, I wouldn't trade you for all the little boys in the world. And he gave her his best answer. And he said, mommy, I love you with all the pieces of my heart. A few weeks ago, I, I married off one of our little girls. And e every one of these gray hairs because of her, all of them. And right before we headed down the aisle, if I live to be 100, I'll never forget it. She reached over and she squeezed my arm as we were getting ready to walk down the aisle. And here's what she looked at me and she said. She said, Daddy, for all the times that I've broken your heart, I'm so sorry. Can you imagine the ability to look at our heavenly daddy as we prepare to walk down the aisle of worship and say, for all the times I've broken your heart, I'm so sorry. And watch a heavenly father take those loving hands and remold and reshape our heart and put it all back together, place it in one place. And you say to him, God, I love you with all the pieces of my heart. Maybe today you're here and your heart feels like some pieces. Maybe today you're here and your heart is broken. The questions, I guess, is how many of those pieces are going to be devoted to loving God and to loving others? You should love the Lord your God with all the pieces of your heart. You know, the Bible says a lot about the heart. In Matthew 6, 21, it says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Proverbs 3, 5 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Proverbs 4, 23 says, above all else, guard your heart, 
John 14, 27 says, Peace I live with you, leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Psalm 37, 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And in Matthew 5, 8, Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Worship begins as an act of the outpouring of your heart. Whatever is deep in the crevices of your heart will be revealed in an attitude of worship. And so if what's tucked down deep in the attitude or in the crevices of your heart is an attitude of anger or bitterness, then it it absolutely keeps that blood from pumping the goodness and the presence of God. And what's the overflow is what's deep-seated in there of anger or bitterness or resentment or tradition or whatever else captures your affection. And God says, but I want to come, I want to perform a heart surgery on you. I want to give you a brand new heart. And and I I want all the crevices to be clean. And I want the veins and the arteries to pump slowly and freely. And I, I want it all to work well. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks according to the Gospel of Matthew. A.W. Tozer once said, without worship, we go about miserably. I mean, the Bible teaches us to worship in spirit and in truth. And to truly worship in spirit, we've got to develop a spirit of worship beginning with our heart. Whatever's hidden in our heart is what we're choosing to worship. Maybe it's fame or money or power or tradition or fitness or football or movies or television or social media. We worship whatever we allow to rule on our hearts. Would you do me a favor? Would you just take a deep breath? Do it one more time. Just settle back for just a second. Listen to what King David said. Maybe you want to take a moment and let this be your prayer right in the middle of this service today. King David said in Psalm 139, 23, he said, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Today, let the King of kings and the Lord of lords Let him reach deep down in your heart and give you a brand new one so you might worship him with all of your heart. Obviously, the heart's the big deal, isn't it? That whatever starts in here leaks its way out into every area of our life. And so we need to start with that heart change, that moment where God removes our dead hearts and give us a brand new heart, just like we've seen illustrated through baptism today, that God starts on the inside of us. But Jesus doesn't stop there, does he? He says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your, what's the next one? Soul. With all of your soul. And really, soul is something that seems less tangible, doesn't it? It's easy to talk about a physical heart and use that as a, as a description. But the soul, in a lot of ways, isn't as obvious. It isn't as tangible. But in a biblical sense, it is so important because here's what our soul is. Our soul defines our life. Our soul shapes our personality. Our soul is what gives definition to our inner life, and ultimately our identity is caught up in all of that. And so because of that, our soul is so important. It affects our decisions, it affects our choices, it affects our lifestyle. And so for Jesus to say, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul, we need to pause and ask the question, well, how can I love God with all of my soul? What does it look like? And in fact, if you've got a pen and you want to jot these down, I just have three tangible ways to help guard our soul and to love God with our soul. And the first one is super practical, is that we would make godly choices. 
that we would make godly choices. Oftentimes, I know in my own life, I underestimate the power of decisions. I underestimate the power of choices. I think, well, it doesn't really matter what I decide to eat, where I decide to go, you know, what movies we, we watch, what I read. A lot of times I underestimate the power of choices, but we've all heard the phrase that life really is the sum of the choices we make. So every decision we make, whether it's the conversations we have at work, whether it's what we talk about when we're at home, whether it's where we go and what we do, all of those choices add up and those choices do one of two things. They either push us closer to God and make us live more of this likewise kind of life or those choices pull us further away from him. And so what happens a lot of times is people will come in and out of the doors of a room like this and, and think worship is just what happens in this room. And because of that, they'll disconnect from the choices they make and they'll leave a place like this thinking, well, I've been to worship. And then they'll go to life and they'll make all these awful decisions that they know are outside the bounds of God, outside of the direction of God. And then they'll ask the question, well, well, how come when I pray, it feels like my prayers never make it past the ceiling? Or how come when I come into a service, other people seem to be connected with the songs or they're lifting hands and they're singing along. How come that doesn't stir anything inside of me? And oftentimes I think that happens because they've disconnected what worship really is and they've made a series of bad choices, ungodly choices. And whenever we live that way, when we have ungodly decision after decision after decision, it makes it very difficult to sense God. I don't know if that makes sense, but it makes it very difficult to sense God's voice and to know what his will is for your life. And so to love God with all of our soul, I think it starts real practically with making godly decisions to say every time I make a decision this day, this week, this year, I want to, I want to make sure that this, this decision is honoring towards God, that it's not pulling me away. So that's the first one. A is making godly decisions, but B, a second way to do this is to feed your soul. To worship God with all of our soul means that we need to feed our souls with something because we all know the phrase that we are what we, we are what we eat. And sometimes that's dangerous, isn't it? After college football on Saturday, if we are what we eat. But it's the same thing true spiritually. Whatever we feed our souls will determine, in a lot of ways, the shape of our soul, the, the bend of our soul, the personality of our soul. And so in other words, if all we're doing is feeding our souls with worldly stuff, guess the, guess what shape our soul is going to take? It's going to take a worldly shape. If all we're doing is feeding ourselves with negativity, guess what kind of people we're probably going to end up being? Negative people. If you feed your soul with sinful desires, guess how you're going to live? You're going to live out sinful desires. And so if we are what we eat, we need to make sure that we've got a steady diet of the word of God in our life. When, when Jesus was asked this question, he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter six, where God says, man shall not live by bread of bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so we need to build into our lives this daily habit that just like if we're going to eat three meals a day, if that's going to be a habit in our lives, and that's true of most of us or more meals <laughs> for most of us, then we need to build into our life this, this natural, desire to spend time in the word of God. And it's, and it's so doable. It's so doable. When I was a kid, I used to hear preachers talk about, you need to spend time in the word of God. And I'd hear some preachers pick up their big giant preacher Bible and say, you need to read through the Bible in a year. And when I was a kid, I thought that's so impossible. There's no way there's books of the Bible. I don't understand. There's books called numbers. And, you know, and so for me, it seemed intangible 
But now I look back on it and, and we've got access to so many resources that I've got an app on my phone called the Bible app called YouVersion. And it has all kinds of daily Bible reading plans. Our, our online bulletin that's delivered to our email inboxes every Friday has a little reading plan at the bottom that if you read it every day by the end of the year, you read through the New Testament. And, and what I've found since being a kid is that if you would just spend 15 minutes a day in the Bible, that it's possible that with those 15 minutes a day to read through the Bible in a year. I think that's amazing. Whether you read through the Bible in a year or whether you read through the New Testament in a year, the same principle is true that we need a daily diet of the Word of God in our life. That what happens when we bury His Word in our hearts, when we download it, it's almost like we're changing the operating system of our life, that we're taking out the faulty code, the sinful code, and we're placing His code into our life, and it begins to change the way that we live. So A, make godly choices. B, feed our souls with the Word of God. And here's the last one I'll give. We need to see, cultivate gratefulness. We need to cultivate an attitude of gratitude. Have y'all noticed, is it just me, but aren't there a lot of angry people around us today? Have y'all noticed that? Have y'all noticed all the, especially with Highway 20 going on and all, all that? Everybody's just angry about something. And if there's nothing to be angry about, we'll make something up, won't we? We'll, we get ticked off over the littlest things. Well, here's what I found. Again, similar to feeding our souls, if all we do is feed our lives with negativity, if all we do is feed our lives with chaos, if all we do is watch the cable news networks where the, the sky is falling, everything's bad, we just need to, need to hide in some back closet and wait for Jesus. If all we do is feed our lives with that, then that's the way we're going to live out. We're just going to, we're going to have this doom and gloom mentality. But what I love about the series is we run everything through the filter of the life of Jesus. Is that the way that Jesus lived? When people were around Jesus, was he always negative? Was he always doom and gloom? Was he always, well, we're just going to... No, he, he spoke life and light into darkness. And so here's a practical way, I think, to build gratitude in our lives. If you look on your sermon notes page, on the right side there is honestly a homework assignment which seems kind of wrong in some ways. I'm grateful I don't have homework more often. But on the right side is something simply called a thankfulness journal. I don't know if you've ever done this or not, but at the end of each day, what I would challenge you, encourage you to do every day this week is before the end of the day, sit down, pull out your sermon notes page, and where it says Sunday, at the end of this day, ask this question, what am I grateful for today? And then when you get around to Monday, after you go through the craziness of Monday, to sit down and say, what am I thankful from God for this day? And do that Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And at the end of Saturday, to ask this question, what was the best part of this week? And what I found is that if we'll end each day saying, thank you, God. Thank you for what you've done. Thank, thank you for how you've provided. We can begin to carry that into our lifestyle, that we would live a lifestyle of gratitude. And what you begin to find is that soul, that intangible part of us that was the, that, that shapes our decisions, that shapes our decisions and, and the direction of our life, that our soul begins to look like Christ. And so that's what I think it means to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul. And then Jesus says, with all of our mind, mind with our mind. Ralph Waldo Emerson once said, religion that is afraid of science dishonors God and commits suicide. You see, science and faith shouldn't be enemies. They're, they're allies. In a sense, every ology is a branch of theology. I mean, one way to get to know the creator is by studying his 
creation. Can you imagine studying about Pablo Picasso, but never looking at his paintings? Can you imagine studying Beethoven, never listening to his music? It's as absurd as studying the creator without studying his creation. I mean, we are to love the Lord with our heart, our soul, and our mind. Einstein, who we equate with the mind a little bit, said there's only two ways to live your life. One is as if nothing is a miracle. The other as if everything is. I know plenty of people would say to me, you know, Chuck, I've never experienced a miracle. I've never known of a miracle. I've never seen a miracle. Now, I understand that, but I believe we experience miracles all day, every day. We just have gotten to the point that we like to explain them away in our humanity. Take, for instance, right now, you've got no sense of motion, but you're sitting on a planet that's spinning around its axis at a 1,000 miles an hour. Planet Earth will make one full rotation in the next 24 hours. Not only that, you're traveling through space at approximately 66,600 miles per hour. Before the day is done, you will have traveled 1.3 million miles in your annual trek around the sun, and you didn't have any big plans for the day. But here's the thing. We don't think about that or worry about that. or We don't celebrate that. When's the last time you got up in the morning and you thank God for keeping us in orbit? I mean, when's the last time you, you got to the breakfast table and at your prayer time said, so dear God, I was concerned we wouldn't make the full rotation today, but you did it. Way to go, God. I mean, we, we don't do that, do we? Because in our humanity, we just take for granted that all that works. You know why? Because he spoke it into creation. What I want you to see this morning is we ought to throw a party every day to celebrate what a huge accomplishment this is. Let our mind see God at work so that you might worship him with your whole heart, with your whole soul, and all of your mind. I mean, keeping the planets in orbit is no small feat. I mean, we experience an astronomical miracle every single day, and we just try to explain it away as science. I mean, let's take a look at uh, a day in the life of our mind. Maybe just a snapshot in the day of the life of our mind. Just as you don't do anything about moving a muscle, you don't do anything without using your mind in some form or fashion. Every waking, I mean, even waking up to an alarm clock is a complex cognitive function involving your auditory cortex and reticular formation. How do you like that? It's a mouthful. You know what that means? I have no idea. The moment you open your eyes, the visual cortex starts processing stimuli. I mean, using your motor cortex, you get out of bed and stumble to the bathroom. If you sing in the shower, you're utilizing the right temporal lobe of your brain. Just reading the newspaper is an amazing feat. Watch this. Your left temporal lobe processes nouns. Your left frontal lobe handles verbs. And the left parietal lobe processes grammar. You take a quick look at your schedule for the day and your prefrontal cortex tries to figure out how you can get it done by the end of the day. You hop in the car and drive to work based on the mental map stored in your posterior hippocampus. You pop into a Starbucks to grab a cup of coffee and you count out change using the left parietotemporal part of your brain. You haven't even started your work day yet and just about everything you've done so far is absolutely routine and yet at the same time absolutely miraculous. Because he created our mind in order that we might worship him. But when's the last time you said, wow, God, thanks. I, my hand can grab that coffee cup from Starbucks, 
put the sleeve on the outside so I don't burn my hand, bring it to my lips and blow on it so I don't burn my lips, take a sip of it and have that amazing pumpkin spice latte fall in love with my mouth. Ridiculous. Could I get a glory? (laughs) And all of that because God created my mind to worship him. Now, obviously, all that stuff I just shared is a gross simplification of something that's divinely complex, right? I mean, I've only mentioned a few of the neurological actors, and all of them have a supporting cast. Now, compare all of those neurological functions and features with this that Jesus said is the first and the greatest of all commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind, and loving God with half your mind simply doesn't get it. Loving God with all your mind involves every facet of your mind and being. I honestly believe most of our spiritual battles, and by the way, we've got them all the time, do we not? All of us have got spiritual battles. I mean, I, I believe our spiritual battles are won or lost in our mind. They're won or lost in our, in our, in our mind. Most of our problems are the byproduct of what we'd say here in the South, stinking thinking. I mean, it's like Bobby said, we just, we fill our minds with so much junk that we just, we're just rotting away from stinking thinking. I mean, listen, you might be one of those folks that goes home and watches a news channel, Fox News or CNN or whatever your, whatever your deal is. And before long, everybody's screaming about something. I mean, we, we hate liberals. We hate conservatives. We hate politicians. We hate big business. We hate unions. We, before long, we just hate people. And you sit there, and by the time you get done, dinner sounds like this. It's their fault. Because we filled our mind with stinking thinking. What if we were to take a look at what the Scripture says and recognize we tend to poorly manage our minds? The battle against pride or lust or anger isn't won in the behavioral realm. Where Bobby talks about us making good decisions, good decisions start here. They start in the mind, and it's one in the cognitive realm. It is amazing how many scripture verses talk about the importance of the mind. Let me give you just a sample. Romans 12, 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 2 Corinthians 10, 5. Take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. 2 Timothy 2, 15. Study to show yourself approved, Philippians 4.8. If anything is good or right or pure or just, think about such things. Colossians 3.2, fix your mind on the things above. Philippians 2.5, let this mind be in, in yours, which is also in Christ Jesus. You see, worship is the believer's response of all that they are, mind, emotions, will, body, to what God is and says and does. Now, like Bobby mentioned earlier in, in, this, in this little handout, you've got this opportunity to look at this journal. We sit down to eat dinner, and J- Jenny started this in our house, and she's ruthless about it. I mean, we, we don't have dinner without this happening. And she'll, matter of fact, she asks me this every day. She asks our kids this every day. You know, she'll say, what was the best part of your day? You, you know what my answer is some days? Right now, this is the best part of my day. She asked me every day, what was the best part of your day? You know why she asked me that? So that I can think on that which is good. 
and not get bogged down and not, not get weighed down? What if I were to see God in all of his goodness? What if I were to recognize God's presence in my life? What if I were to allow my mind to be on those things which matter to him and not on all those external circumstances that are floating around me? But what if I were to allow my mind to become the mind of Christ? You and your family, literally every day this week, even before you just kind of split up and everybody went in your 40 different directions, what was the best thing about your day? What are you thankful for God about this day? As we worship, you can keep growing, you can keep changing, you can keep renewing your mind. And that's the essential process of being a disciple. I mean, the Greek word for disciple is mathetes, mathetes, which literally means learner. By definition, a disciple is someone who never stops learning. So when Jesus had his disciples, the reason they were called disciples is they were to never stop learning about him. So what are we to be? We are to be disciples who make disciples so that we never stop learning. About what? About him. So we can think on those things that are good and holy and just and right. Let that become our mind, that we might have the mind of Christ. When we have the mind of Christ, we can worship with our whole mind. We don't just think like Jesus thought. We feel like he felt. We see like he saw. We develop our logical left brain, our creative right brain. We develop our memory and our imagination, and we connect our heart and our soul to our mind, and we worship him with our whole being. And you know why? He is worthy. Today, stop and Feel your heart as it rhythmically beats. Hear your breathing as it rises and it rests. And stop to hear the voice of God as he reveals his son and his will for your life this day. You see, when Jesus says your heart, he's talking about I want your life. When he says your soul, he's talking about I want every ounce of your being. When he says, I want your mind, he says, I want your thoughts to be captivated by me. And then all together, he says, now you're ready to worship. And you see, when he does that, he doesn't put worship into a box contained in 70 minutes. He says, you can worship me now as you ride down the road. You can worship me and replace all of that negativity with my presence and my goodness. You can worship me by making the choices of what's on your screen and on your television and on your radio. You can can worship me. Today, may we be a people that would recognize that he wants all of us to worship him in spirit and in truth. Father, we love you. We praise you. And on this day, May you, may you call us in this loving and wonderful relationship to serve you and to love you with all of our soul, with all of our heart, and with all of our mind. And as Bobby told that story earlier, God, may this be a time that we commemorate and celebrate your presence and your goodness. And may we celebrate the fact that you first loved us. Your body was broken and your blood was shed, that we might have life more abundantly today and eternally forever. And it's because of that you are more than worthy of all our worship with our heart and our soul and our mind. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. As we continue worshiping this morning, I want to invite our deacons, our team that's going to help us in these next few minutes as we participate in something that we call the Lord's Supper.
the Lord's Supper. As they come, they're going to be passing out these two cups that are stacked together. And just like baptism, there's nothing magical about what happens in the baptism waters. There's nothing magical that happens with the juice and with the bread, but it's a picture. It's a chance for us to commemorate. It's a chance for us to remember. It's a chance for us to celebrate who Jesus is and what he did. When we talk about this whole idea of loving God with everything that we have, the greatest picture that we have is Jesus himself. In fact, the New Testament teaches us that we are able to love him because he first loved us. And that love wasn't a theory. That love wasn't wasn't something emotional. It wasn't something disconnected. But the love of Jesus literally caused him to leave heaven and come to this earth. That on this earth, he lived a perfect, sinless life. And that when he went to the cross, because he was sinless, he was able to take my sin, your sins, the sins of the world. He was able to take all of those sins on himself and pay the penalty for sin. And so this morning, as we worship through this remembrance, this is a great time for us to pause and for us to do what Pastor Chuck led us through, just to take a deep breath and to reflect on him. If you're a believer, this is a great time to just pause and just bow your head and bow your hearts as I'm about to do and just ask the Lord, Lord, is there anything going on in my heart that doesn't please you? God, is there any unconfessed sin in my life? God, is there any junk that that you died for and yet I willingly go back and I choose to tangle my life in and just pause and to use this moment to allow the Lord just to do an x-ray on our hearts and say, God, would you forgive me? God, I'm sorry. If you're a parent and you're sitting next to one of your kids, this, this could be a great teaching moment for you. This could be a great moment for you just to, to whisper quietly to your child and say, well, this is what this means, that, that this isn't magical. This bread and this juice isn't magical, but what it is, is it's a symbol. Just like the ring on my left hand is a symbol of my marriage. It doesn't make me married. If I take it off, it doesn't undo our marriage. It's just a physical symbol. Well, here's what the Bible teaches in the Gospel of Matthew. Right before Jesus was betrayed, right before Jesus went to the cross, the Bible says that Jesus gathered his disciples, his learners, the people that that left everything to follow him, and he gathered them together in this upper room ceremony where they took something from the Old Testament. This was the Passover meal, and he took that Old Testament meal, and he gave it a new symbol to say, this is what this means. Here's what Jesus says. Matthew chapter 26, verse 26. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to the disciples, and he said, take, eat, this is my body. And then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and he said, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And so what Jesus did on that day is what we're doing on this day is he used this physical picture to teach us a spiritual truth. That this bread, if you'll sort of disconnect your two cups, if you'll unstack them and just take a moment and take a look at the bread. There's nothing magical about this bread. There's nothing special other than this moment. This bread is a symbol that Jesus came to this earth in his body, that Jesus suffered in his body. That when Jesus hung on that cross, he hung in his body. His body was placed in a tomb, but three days later he came back to life with resurrection life, able to give any one of us that brand new start. And so let's follow the example of Jesus. Let's give thanks for his body. Father, thank you for this morning.
Thank you for the remembrance of what you did on the cross. Thank you that you left heaven and you came to this earth and you gave all. We say thank you to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And after they ate of the bread, Jesus took a cup. And he, he painted a picture, as, as Bobby just mentioned, that this fruit of the vine was a picture. It was a picture of his shed blood for you and for me. Now, if you get the picture, there are the disciples, the lifelong learners. And Jesus says to them, this is a picture of the blood I'm about to shed so that you might have life more abundantly today and eternally in heaven. You see, the Old Testament had said there's no remission, there's no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. And they used animals, and then Jesus came along and said, whoa, whoa, whoa. As the perfect, spotless Lamb of God, I'll die so you don't have to, and shed his blood that we might have life. And so he took that cup and he said, so as often as you eat this bread and you drink this, remember me. And then there in that room, Jesus and those disciples, scripture says, they sang. We're the only place in the world that asks you to come and show up and sing. You know why? Because Jesus, after he said, I'm going to have my body broken and I'm going to shed my blood for you. He thought it appropriate with a heart full to sing. You know why we ought to sing? Because Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain washed it white as snow. That's why we sing. Join us. Just made it all, all to him.